Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Today Michelle teaches from the book of Ephesians, a book that teaches the transforming power of Christ and who we really are in Christ. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now Michelle. Welcome to our study of Ephesians, Saved by Grace, Living in Power. Before we look at the text of the book, we're actually going to take a look at the history of the church in that city. You see, God used Paul to write the letter to the Ephesians, and we're going to begin our study really in the book of Acts to see how he came to be associated with the people there and how the church was planted in that city. Of course, we know that Paul had come out of a very legalistic Jewish background. Originally, he was a Pharisee by the name of Saul, who was one of the main persecutors of the early Christians. But as he was journeying to Damascus to persecute the church there, he dramatically encountered Jesus for himself. After that, he became a devoted follower of Christ, and he gave his life to the preaching of the gospel. He traveled a lot preaching from place to place while he supported himself making tents. Of course, in those early days, most of Paul's preaching was done in synagogues from town to town as he began to share his newfound faith with his fellow Jews who were scattered across the Roman Empire. Paul had actually gone as far as Corinth, where our story begins today, and it was there that he met a Jew named Aquila, who was married to a woman called Priscilla. Now, this couple had originally lived in Rome, and actually many do believe that Priscilla was a Roman, but they had had to flee because of a persecution of the Jews there by the Emperor Claudius, who had banned all Jews from the city of Rome. Now, it's really important that we understand that Emperor Claudius was not persecuting Christians, but rather Jews at the time. And so Priscilla and Aquila came to live in Corinth, where, as good Jewish people, they obviously attended the synagogue. And it was there that they heard Paul preach and teach about Jesus Christ. Now, as Jews, they would, of course, understood that no matter how hard you tried to live a good life following God, Mankind had a debt of sin that could only be paid by an innocent sacrifice dying in your place. But when Paul came to town, they learned that all of those old animal sacrifices from the Old Testament had actually pointed to Jesus Christ, the true Lamb of God, who came to die on their behalf and on ours as well. You see, accepting his blood as the payment for their debt to God, Aquila and Priscilla became Christ followers through Paul's good news message. And these three became really good friends because they, like Paul, actually were both tent makers as well. They worked together and they also ended up ministering together. Of course, not everyone in Corinth liked the message that Paul was preaching. But many Gentiles and Jews were beginning to believe in Jesus Christ in that city. And finally, when the leader of the synagogue, a man by the name of Crispus, 
actually became a follower of Christ, it was then that the other Jewish leaders there began to make trouble for Paul. And eventually, Paul, Priscilla and Aquila left Corinth by boat on a journey to Jerusalem. But along their way, their ship had to dock at the port of Ephesus, where it was to change out its cargo. And it was there that these three travelers went into the city to share the good news of Christ with others. The city of Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey today. Back then, it was a wealthy commercial hub, and actually historians estimate the population as being between 250,000 and 500,000 people. This large city was the chief seaport in the Roman province of Asia. It was actually built on the mouth of the Caister River, And the city was actually four miles from the sea, but the river's mouth was so wide that ships had easy access into the city as long as the people dredged the sand from the river to keep the port open. Today, of course, if you visit the ruins of the city of Ephesus, they stand four miles from the sea. And you look at it and think, how could this ever have been a seaport? But it is that way now because eventually, left untended, that river closed up with silt. Ephesus was one of the most important cities in Rome's empire because it really was the gateway to Asia and all imports and exports to and from Rome flowed through it. You see, known for its great library that held 12,000 scrolls, it also had a wonderful theater that could seat up to 25,000 people. So this city was not only a city of education, but it was also a city of culture. We cannot make the mistake that uh, these people were simple or uneducated. However, Ephesus was really more than a political, commercial, cultural, and academic center. It was also a very important religious center as well. Not only did it have a temple dedicated to the Roman emperor, because of course in those days emperors were all worshipped as being gods themselves, but it also had a huge temple dedicated to the Greek goddess Artemis, which was known as Diana to the Romans. This temple, known as the Artemision, was so large it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and is believed to have been four times larger than even the Parthenon in Athens. There was a great industry, though, associated with the Artemision because many people in the city worked as silversmiths, making little silver images of Artemis to sell to all of the tourists who came through. This was a city really of many gods, and we're told in Acts chapter 18 verse 19 that it was there that Paul, and I quote, entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. 
You see, Paul was anxious to get to Jerusalem because he'd undertaken a vow to the Lord that really needed to be completed there. He was not able to remain in Ephesus at that time, but Priscilla and Aquila, they did stay, and they initially continued the work there that Paul had begun. Once Paul had worshipped in Jerusalem, of course, he began his slow journey back to them. And along the way, he stopped and visited many churches that he'd already planted along the route. Now, we're not told how long this journey took, but Paul finally did arrive back in Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 8, we're told that immediately he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. As was his custom, you see, Paul initially spent time reasoning and persuading people down at the Jewish synagogue in the city. Naturally, not all of them were open to the message, and soon some of them began to speak evil of the way. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Christianity was initially called the way because Jesus had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. That's John 14, verse 6. So, as a result of him saying that, Christianity became known as the way. And when this opposition arose, Paul immediately withdrew from the synagogue, taking the true disciples with him, and he began to reason with people daily at a place known as the School of Tyrannus. Now, not much is known about this school, except that it was likely a philosophy school in the city. Interesting to me, the name Tyrannus actually means our tyrant, and so perhaps you have to wonder if that was a nickname given to some uh, difficult philosophy teacher by his students. Well, whatever the case, Paul was able to use the classroom when it was free, which usually would have been from lunchtime through to 4 p.m. in the afternoon, which was really a time of rest for all the Mediterranean people. But it seems that not everyone was having a sleep during that time because many of them actually came to that classroom to hear him speak. He taught there for two years, and because Ephesus was such a vibrant trade and tourist city, we learn that from there, the word began to spread, and people across the whole province of Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because they took the good news of Christ home with them when they returned to their different cities. The fact that people heard was hardly surprising, as God was also doing incredible miracles through Paul. And you can look at that in Acts chapter 19, verse 11. It says there, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and diseases left 
them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Remember that Ephesus was the center for the occult. Those in the city really knew the power of evil, and though Paul was new to the city, they really saw that there was a greater power at work within him. Now, I just want to point out that it was not Paul who did all of these amazing things. Rather, it was the Holy Spirit at work through him to heal the sick and to free the oppressed. God does the work, and as believers, we really do just join him in the work that only he can do. But as Paul did the work that only God could do, word spread and many people were interested in Paul's success. Look at verse 13 there. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So it was not unheard of for Jewish priests to seek to cast out demons. In Ephesus, some of these Jewish ministers, such as the seven sons of Siva, decided that seeing as Paul happened to have such success in casting out demons by invoking the name of Jesus, they decided that they should try the same thing too. But it didn't go well for them. Why is that? Well, the answer is actually there in verse 13. They were invoking the name of Jesus of whom Paul preaches. And that's their problem. You see, it's very evident that they had no personal knowledge of Jesus, no relationship with him themselves, and the demon knew it. They used Christ's name almost as if it was some sort of a lucky charm, and that is not going to work because all of this comes out of a personal relationship with Christ and by us being filled with the Holy Spirit. And hence the demon says to them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? You see, clearly, here we see that demons know exactly who Jesus is. But more than that, they know who belongs to him and who does not. They knew that Paul was covered by the blood of Christ and that he was sealed with the Holy Spirit. They also knew that these men had no such covering or seal upon them. The Christian's authority comes from Christ alone. And these seven sons of Siva, because they were not in Christ, had no authority to really speak as they did. Consequently, the demon-afflicted man overpowered them and prevailed against them. And in that, God proved that he was with Paul and he was not with them. Paul had an unmistakable relationship with God, and it was all based on the fact that he belonged to Jesus Christ. 
This seemingly terrible incident led to a great good being done because what happened as a result was the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Why? Because people came to understand that it was only Christ's ministers who had any real power against the demonic realm. In Ephesus, when people saw the power of a relationship with Jesus Christ, this incredible awe of God came upon them and they began to magnify his name. And not only did they do that, they did something else as well. Look at verse 18. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. The tense of the Greek here in verse 18 really means that the people kept on coming and they kept on confessing. Many, many people were turning from their old way of life to Christ. New believers, they began to separate themselves from what they had originally been doing. The practice of magic had been commonplace in that city. But as people came to faith, they brought their magic books and burned them publicly. Now, that's a really important thing because we're told here that the value of the magic books and scrolls that they destroyed really had the equivalent of what was a year's wages for 150 men. Can you imagine how much that would equal today? Of course, though, as the gospel transforms individual people, the culture starts to change. And when that happens, we know that opposition is going to be sure to arise. Look at what we're told in verse 23. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Demetrius here was really Satan's agent, whether he knew it or not, because he was motivating the silversmiths of Ephesus to riot. You see, as people turn to Christ, their fascination with Artemis or the goddess known as Diana, their fascination with this false deity began to diminish. And there was a decreased need for her images among all those people who came into the city. They weren't interested in worshipping something that had been made by the hands of the silversmith. And as a result, with this reduced need for her idols, 
the silversmith's livelihood was at risk. These suppliers of false religion were opposed to the preaching of the gospel because it weakened their influence and it threatened their income. And so they said it was all in honor of Diana, but really it was self-interest that was really at the heart of the matter. Now, of course, as with any mob, there was a lot of confusion. Verse 28 and 29 says, Now when they, the mob, heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go in to the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused and most of them didn't know why they'd come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Now, do you remember that theater could hold 25,000 people? Well, so great was this crowd that they rushed into the theater so that everybody could be part of it. But in reality, most of that crowd didn't know why they were there. Paul was surely their original target. But do you see, when he couldn't be found, two other Greek disciples who had been traveling with him were seized instead. You know, Paul was a very courageous man, and he was never put off by anything. He was courageous, and he wanted to go in to speak to the crowd. He saw this as an opportunity, I'm sure, to tell all 25,000 of them about Christ. But the other disciples who feared for his life would not let him. Even some of the Roman officials who knew him pleaded with him not to go into the theater. Now, perhaps they were concerned for his life also, but surely they were worried about the city in this volatile state. You see, the Jews of Ephesus were also there because, do you see, they seem to be wanting to reassure the crowd that Paul is really not one of their people. And so they push forward this man by the name of Alexander to assure the infuriated mob that Paul is really not one of them. But it doesn't help. In fact, it infuriates the crowd even more because they knew that the Jews did not approve of their worship of Diana either. And so the crowd begins to scream, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And they continue to do so until the city clerk was finally able to come and calm them down. Let's have a look at verse 35. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and the image which fell down from Zeus? 
Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a cause against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. You see how he manages to quieten them down, saying to them that no one would ever be able to forget that the great goddess Diana, whose image fell from the sky, was guardian of the city. Now, many believe that that image that had fallen from the sky was possibly a meteorite. His argument was that all men everywhere would know that she not only had a special interest in the city, but that Ephesus was guardian of Diana or Artemis. And he reassured them that they need not fear that anything would ever change. But you know, it did. I mean, few remember Artemis and who she was today. In fact, Ephesus is more widely known for the church that grew up there than for the worship of the pagan goddess Artemis. Even the Artemision has long since gone, and if anything remains, it's only a few piles of rubble. According to verse 37, the Christians had not done anything illegal. But even if the silversmiths did have a case, then the clerk urged them to bring it all to the courts rather than to deal with it by mob justice. Why? Because this riot would attract the attention of Rome and not in a good way. You see, though Rome dominated the region, Ephesus was still a free city, but if the Romans called the people to give an account for the day's riot and all of their unruly proceedings, the citizens of Ephesus would be unable to do so, and they would really be at risk of losing all of the freedoms that Rome had given them. And you can see how that mattered to the people, because his words had a great effect and the assembly quickly dissolved. Let's conclude then briefly by looking at chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Paul was never a man who lacked courage, and he didn't flee all of the hostility that was aimed at him in Ephesus. In fact, it was only once this uproar had ceased that he decided to make his journey to Macedonia and Greece. And in fact, that was a journey that he'd been planning to make for some time. Here, as he says goodbye to the church in Ephesus, we really see the affection that he had for them as he calls everyone to say goodbye. In this lesson, 
we covered the planting of the church at Ephesus and have learned a lot about the people of that city. They were educated, they were cultured, and even so they focused on idolatry and magic arts. They did, however, have those who were earnestly seeking God even there in that godless place. They knew the reality of evil. It was evidenced all around them. But when they heard the gospel message, accompanied by the evidence of God's work in the lives of so many, they gladly believed. And they put aside their old way of life. They abandoned the temple of Artemis to the displeasure of those who were profiting from it. And despite the value and the whole concept of burning documents in a culture that so cherished learning, the Ephesians gladly destroyed the magic scrolls and books that they had previously depended on. You see, Paul, he was the one to light the spark of the church in Ephesus Priscilla and Aquila fanned it, and it is believed that Timothy eventually went on to become the pastor here of the church in that city. And even the Apostle John, you remember the one who Jesus loved? He lived in Ephesus as a teacher before his arrest and his exile to the prison island of Patmos where he wrote down the book of Revelation. We hope you have enjoyed listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Tune in next time when she will be continuing this study on the book of Ephesians. Michelle offers workbooks on this study and others at her website at intheword.com, where you can also read her blog. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer.